So today we take up John chapter 5. I've listed verses 19 through 30. I'm going to be reading in just a few moments, uh, probably in the middle part of that section. So if you have not read John 5, 19 to 30, that's okay. We're going to look at the main part here in just a few moments. But let me begin by asking you a question. How would you feel if you knew that the most powerful and influential men in your community absolutely hated you and were plotting to have you meet your death in a most cruel and untimely manner? If you knew such people were out to get you, would you, say, pack up and run away? Would you change your name and drop out of sight for a while, doing everything you could to avoid those people? We saw last time that Jesus had angered the Pharisees by laying bare both the hypocrisy of their lives and the false nature of their teachings. We learned in John 5:18 that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus and that their hatred of him had been deepened to the point of what we might call fanaticism. Because he dared claim to be the Son of God co-equal with the Father in heaven. Now, in the passage that we have read or are reading today, we see that Jesus is going further in his defense of his sonship with the Father and of his own kingly authority. And in that, Jesus' words represent an act of extraordinary courage and bravery. Because he must have known that for him to speak this way to those people was nothing less than courting death. His claim to be king and son of God put the Pharisees in a position of having to make a choice. They must either accept his kingdom message and follow him, which would mean the end of them and their career and everything that they stood for. You know, when you, when you build your life and your, your belief system on lies and falsehoods, and somebody comes along with the truth and knocks it all down, that's a tough thing to deal with. That was one thing they were going to have to deal with, or they would have to reject him and seek to destroy him. Some of you may find it hard to believe and even harder to understand, but there are people who would be classified as Christian theologians, air quotes, and Bible scholars, quotes, of the, shall we say, more liberal persuasion, who deny that Jesus ever claimed to be the Messiah or the Son of God, that this was something later added to the tradition about Jesus. Now, I don't know how anybody could come up with that, but for us, the most important thing here for this moment is that it's clear from these verses, from the text, that the Jews certainly had no doubt at all about what Jesus was claiming. And friends, that persists to this day. I invite you to speak to any Jewish person you may know of devout faith or get on a plane and fly to Jerusalem right now. And you ask the Jews, what do they think about Jesus Christ? What do they think about, what was it about him that made him so objectionable? You'll find out pretty quick that they still persist in their understanding, and rightfully so. Well, this man claimed to be the divine son of God. 
Now, in these 11 verses, Jesus is claiming to be no less than the Messiah, the Son of the living God, equal to his Father in power and glory. And for that, he would pay with his life. Now, I want to call your attention this morning to these verses in particular. And here I'll read verses 24 through 30. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, let me just say, whenever you see in Scripture, especially in the teachings of Jesus The word truly, truly, repeated. That's sort of a verbal underlining and bold type. In other words, this is important. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Zoe Ionios. We talked about that a few chapters ago. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from Thanatos to Zoe. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming... And is now here. Notice that. Coming now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the Pharisees have already seen with their own eyes a man who had been crippled for almost 40 years, healed by the power of Christ. But now Jesus has told them, They are going to see even greater works than these. And then he explains what those greater works are and will be. And so I want you to consider in the remaining time that we have these four things about what he says here in these verses. First of all, I want you to think about how the Lord performs or executes his work in the present time, that is, in the spiritual realm. So get that. Present time, spiritual realm. In verses 24 and 25, he's talking about how to pass away, to pass, excuse me, from death into life and avoid the sure judgment of God. And he tells the Pharisees that the only way to avoid that judgment is by hearing and believing his word and believing in God the Father. Now, if you didn't know anything else about the Christian faith or about God Almighty for that matter, you can learn the basic fundamental truths from just those words that Jesus spoke. And those basic truths are these. First, we all stand under the judgment of God. And second, because of our sinful hearts. Someone has well observed that in the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words. But someday each of us will have to sing solo before God Almighty. But you see, but by hearing his word and believing in him, we can be delivered from that judgment. It's simply not enough, Jesus declares, for us to hear the word. It is not enough for us to say, just show up on a Sunday at church and sit and listen and go out no different than when we came in. The word must not only be heard, it must be believed. Regeneration and conversion involve fundamental change in how we think, act, and live And they are based on what we believe. 
Another way to remember that is that ideas have consequences. Everything you do, every action you take, every word you speak is based on foundational beliefs that you have that inform and motivate and are the ground of everything that you think and believe. Now, Jesus is not talking here simply about moral improvement. In other words, say a person is a drug addict and they get up one morning and say, you know, I'm going to swear off drugs or, or I'm an alcoholic and I've decided I'm going to quit drinking. See, it's possible to stop doing so-called bad things and still be a stranger to God's grace. But you see, once that grace becomes a reality in our lives, once we have heard the word and believed on him who has given it to us, once we have received this new life, our whole lives, everything changes. Our minds change. We, we cannot live like we once did or see the world in quite the same way. Why? How so? Because we have passed from Thanatos Eistein Zoen in the Greek. We have passed from death to life everlasting. Jesus says in verse 25, that, and this is very puzzling to some people, and, and it's important to understand something about how New Testament eschatology works. The idea of something coming at the end. He says that the hour is coming. But then he also says it now is. Or that that hour has already arrived. And he says that hour when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who truly receive it will live. And the new life that they receive takes place here and now. He says, in this very hour, that hour now is. So, this is puzzling to some people, but what we're seeing here is that there's a resurrection to newness of life for all of those who hear the word of God and believe in him here and now. In his other writings, the Apostle John calls this the first resurrection. It's, and I mean specifically in the book of Revelation. It's the resurrection of the dead soul of a person who has been regenerated. So then Christ is the one who gives new life to all whom he chooses. John told us that the receiving of this new life in Christ, and here we go right back to chapter 1. I say it again, you know, everything in this whole, you know, multi-chapter book of John is encapsulated in like the first 10 or 15 verses of John chapter 1. He says at the very beginning there that this new life in Christ comes not by the will of our flesh, nor by the will of somebody else, but purely by the will of God. God gives his son the authority to import this new life to all whom he wills to have it. Without the new life that Christ gives, our only option is the judgment of God. So in terms of his present action, his present work in the spiritual realm, that's what we're looking at. The first resurrection, the regeneration of a person who's been dead in their trespasses and sins, and they've been reborn, brought to life in new life. But then secondly, think about how the Lord will accomplish this work in the future, specifically in the physical realm. So it's now future physical realm. He refers to this in verse 28 where he speaks of the hour that is coming. The hour that is coming and now is. Well, those two different hours, speaking, you know, metaphorically, they deal with the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection, the reviving of the dead soul, say it again, all who believe. But the second hour that is yet to come 
refers to that second resurrection. And again, this goes to the book of Revelation that the apostle John wrote that book. So unlike the first resurrection, which is spiritual, the second is physical. In the book of Revelation, John uses that same language about those two resurrections. So the first resurrection is not anything to do with the physical body. Whenever we hear and believe the kingdom message, we have present tense everlasting life bestowed upon us. We have passed out of death here and now into new life. Now, of course, what happens to us in the here and now and in this first resurrection is not fully completed. There's the already and the not yet component to it. So there's an earlier and later phase of this receiving of life everlasting. It begins here, but it ends there with the Lord. So we see that by our taking part in the first resurrection, by faith, believing Jesus, we need not fear that hour which is to come. That is a day and an hour in which the judgment and wrath of God comes upon all of his enemies. In other words, we have no fear of condemnation. Now, another way in which that second resurrection differs from the first is that all will be raised in that day and hour. In the first resurrection, only those who receive new life from Christ are, spiritually speaking, raised from their deadness of soul. But in the second resurrection, that again is physical. Both believers and unbelievers are raised up bodily. And believers are raised to continue everlasting life while the unbeliever is raised to condemnation and everlasting death. Now, that's a part of it we don't like to think about, do we? And, and this goes to the heart of how our faith, our faith and practice have been shaped by forces other than what Scripture actually teaches. Dr. Rastuni put it this way, and I'm quoting him. He says, The modern church has made the atonement an instrument of sentimentality whereas the Bible presents it as the, as the evidence of deadly sin and the radical nature of judgment, end of quote. Now, in case you're not quite sure what Dr. Refer, uh, Dr. Rustin is referring to there, uh, maybe put this, I can put this in a more common way of expression. Here it is. Fanny Crosby didn't write the Bible, God Almighty did. And if you still don't know what that means, see me after the service. We need to realize that the law and justice of our Lord God, those are basic to the cross and to judgment. So there is coming a time within the history of this world when all those who are spiritually dead will hear the Son of God and those who are the elect among them will hear and they will live. Now, the third thing that is that Christ is doing here is that he's emphasizing that it is Christ himself who is doing this work in the present and in the future. Look again at verses 26 to 27. Verse 26 reads in the ESV, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. Now I'm going to pause right there. If you have your Bibles open, please look at verse 26. I'm pausing because Bill and I have been talking about the, the meaning of this verse. I don't have time to get into a deep exegesis of it right now, but maybe a, a couple of paraphrase-type translations will throw a little bit more light. You can tell me later what you think. 
uh, in the God's Word to the Nations translation, the Father is the source of life, and He has enabled the Son to be source of life too. An idiomatic translation has it this way, for just as the Father in and of Himself is the source of life, He has endowed His Son in a similar manner to be a repository of life. In verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So, at that point, I think we can make a reasonable assumption about what was taking place there on the ground, so to speak. The Pharisees must have been thinking to themselves, if not saying out loud, who does this guy think he is? He's telling us that he is the fountain uh, of life, the fountainhead of age enduring life. That he has life in himself and he's going to judge us? You know, friends, that, those are questions that many modern people ask as well. You see, for many people, when the kingdom message of Christ is presented to them, they will wonder out loud, if not silently, well, you know, why should I be concerned about any future judgment or condemnation? I mean, I've never spoken a bad word against Jesus. I'm basically a, a, quote, good person. Reminds me of the story of the deathbed statement of the famous American agnostic poet and essayist Henry David Thoreau. Many of you will have read his book, Walden Pond. I say that, I don't know. It used to be required reading in high school when I was in high school. The man lived from 1817 to 1862. And on his deathbed, someone asked Thoreau, had he made his peace with God? And Thoreau, an agnostic to the end, said, made my peace with God while well, I was not aware that we'd ever quarreled. See, that is the attitude. That is the disposition of the unbeliever. He thinks of himself as just an okay guy because he has never been as bad as, say, a serial killer or a mass shooter or a pedophile. So God must be very pleased with him indeed. Besides, why concern yourself about a man like just Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, who a man who is, for many people, no more real than Superman or Hercules, and his word no more to be believed than that of Muhammad or the Buddha. Jesus' age-enduring reply down through the decades and centuries is that he does have the power of giving new life to the spiritually dead and condemning those who persist in their rebellion against God's authority. He is the Son of Man, who he himself says, the same as his Father, the supreme and sovereign ruler over all things. And so that brings me then to the fourth and final thing that Jesus spells out for us to hear today. And that is that when Christ calls a person into his fellowship, he is doing the will of his Father. Jesus the Son and God the Father do not act at cross purposes with each other. They don't act contrarily to each other. If you would know the one, you must know the other. And so too, when Jesus executes judgment on all who deny him and remain dead in their sins, he likewise is doing the will of God the Father. I mean, look again at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, he says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His judgment is a righteous judgment. Precisely because it is the judgment of God Almighty. So there is then a perfect eternal unity between God the Father and God the Son. If a man or a woman would know God, would seek to please and serve God, 
then that person must know and serve his son. That is the will of God. Our Lord tells us that eternal life, salvation, and deliverance from sin and gift are gifts given to us by the grace of God, which we receive by faith in his word. But this judgment to come, the hour that is coming, that will be based on deeds and actions. Each of us will be judged by works. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. We're only a week after Reformation Sunday, and you're here telling me we're going to be judged by our works? I don't think works had anything to do with it. Oh, yes, works have everything to do with it. But the question is, on whose works will we be judged? Because you're going to be judged either based on your own works or deeds and actions in this life, or the finished work of Christ's actions and deeds that have been imputed, credited to you. When that day and hour comes, the question is, whose works do you wish to be judged by? Let us pray.